Give me meat. Episode 100. I'm sure that must have been something. Um, I don't know because I haven't done it yet. Um, this is also part 39 of my recitals of the Tipitaka. The Tipitaka means three, bas- three baskets. The three baskets of pre-sectarian wealth, the three baskets of Theravada Buddhism. This Vinaya Pitaka, the first basket, is certainly pre-sectarian. Uh, these are the rules for the original monks. So every different schism of Theravada Buddhism had a rule against schisming before they schismed. Of course, whenever you ask, uh, when, when, when there was one order, and then later find there's two orders, and you say, which one of you schismed? They tend to say, he did. So, what can you do? The, uh, the Orthodox uh, excommunicated the Pope, and the Pope excommunicated the Orthodox. So who excommunicated who? Who could say? So Sutta Vibhanga means rules analysis. The the Sutta Vibhanga is the portion of the Vinaya Pitaka that we're uh, that we're doing. Vinaya Pitaka means discipline basket. So perhaps we'll get to a point in the Vinaya Pitaka where we're no longer reading the Sutta Vibhanga, no longer doing rules analysis in the discipline basket. Maybe there's uh, some some other sort of discipline rather than uh, than just the rules. But I, I do like how they how the rules all kind of start with a story that ex- explains what happened, how that rule came to be. And, uh, and it even, at the very beginning of it, at the beginning of Parajika, Ananda came and said, Buddha, what makes, a, what makes an order last longer? And Buddha said, uh, Lord Buddha said, when there's a clearly established set of rules, then the order tends to last longer. And he says, Lord, give us the rules. And he says, ah, in its time, you know, when, when the order gets to a certain point, when there's a hundred monks, there'll be uh, certain things that come up, that'll be the time to establish the rules. And when we get to be a thousand, which, I mean, I don't think they did while they were alive, as far as monks go, which I guess would be the equivalent of having like a thousand people in your inner order, a thousand uh, <clears throat> adepts or staff, um, as far as comparing sizes. But then, of course, the world population 2,600 years ago was substantially less than it is today. So, you know, these are things to keep in mind when comparing things. But anyway, um, yeah, so that all being said, yeah, so he so when so the rules uh, were established and then uh, <clears throat> I just woke up. I'm sorry. If this is your first time seeing me, do go ahead and click way up there in the sky, and uh, that will take you to the the Tipitaka playlist. You can start with episode one. Oh yeah, I was gonna say something amusing about how. Uh, People tend to, like, when, when people are aware of all the scriptures, when someone is familiar with all the scriptures, they tend to say, yeah, the first basket is pretty basic stuff, like basic morality, which is true, but it's also not. 
um, basic morality doesn't include how many miles you should carry wool on your own as a monk. These are some very specific things that define a type of human. Um, a follower of Lord Buddha should not be made to always be doing the dishes because she needs to have time to study, you know, the teachings of Lord Buddha. So if there's a group of monks and a group of nuns, and uh, the monks are always making the nuns do errands, no, Lord Buddha made rules against that. You can only boss nuns around if they're your sister. <laughs> okay, that's the rule then, you know. But there's rules. These things were taken into consideration. I mean, or your seventh cousin. Even still, she should be allowed to say no. I mean, it was never explicitly stated that she couldn't say no. But yeah, the monks, I think they were sort of senior to them or over them. You know, there might be some kind of old-fashioned ranking system that way, but but it was it was clear the monks are not allowed to uh, put the nuns into servitude, make them do their laundry and stuff, because the nuns have to have time to meditate and study Lord Buddha's teachings. So I'm glad I'm reading this, but it does a little bit make me think of season one of Star Trek The Next Generation. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's not as good. There were eight seasons. Season one, it was having a little bit of trouble finding itself. But, if a person considers themselves a Trekkie, you can't skip it. Um, and I, maybe there's a bit of ego in this, because I know a lot of folks... In fact, I don't, I don't think I know anybody who's read uh, the Vinaya Pitaka, wall-to-wall. -wall. Or if they do, they haven't advertised it. And uh, so, you know, someone might say, well, I've read the Heart Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, and the Lotus Sutra. And of the three, my favorite was the Lotus Sutra, because I like how the Buddha spoke as a father of humanity because of my Christian upbringing, it was familiar, you know, and it's like, okay, and that, that that's as far as a lot of people go with it. And uh, me, on the other hand, at that time, I was like, well, I haven't really read any of those, but uh, now I want to read everything, everything I can, everything I can get my hands on, and I think that this show... <laughs> This podcast, this uh, video series is a really good excuse to do that. And a really good excuse, as if I needed an excuse to, uh, to buy all these books, to collect all these Buddhist books. Did I ever tell you, I mentioned Kanchan briefly the other day, but I didn't uh, explain he was the one who owned that yoga studio in Nepal. Uh, but I, I had talked about... Well, anyway. He, at one point, he said, You know what I see you doing? And I said, What? And he said, I see you reading every Buddhist book that you can get your hands on and not achieving any sort of enlightenment whatsoever. And then one day, you'll go to Himachal Pradesh somewhere outside of Rishikesh and uh, sit up, not on the highest mountain, but on a peak of one of the Himalayas there and just meditate in full lotus position and after a time you will awaken and you will realize that you were wasting your time that whole time and that all you needed was your body your spirit, your soul, and that, and of course, Himachal Pradesh, and uh, is that Uttar Pradesh or Himachal Pradesh? Well, anyway, Rishikesh area, you know, you know, yoga capital of the world. Those mystical mountains from Batman and the Shadow. Every uh, every good movie that uh, you know one sees growing up 
involves the hero hiking up or climbing up, climbing up usually, but usually you just hike up, you know, the Himalayas and find a temple up at the top and some ancient people inside. Dr. Strange is Johnny come lately. He just went to Kathmandu. He didn't even go on a trek. Lazy ass mofo. Anyway. Um, so yeah. So, you know, I took Kanchan's words to heart and I decided to make it a mission statement. I will read every Buddhist book I can get my hands on and I will uh, not expect to get anywhere. I do want to read them, though. Because, uh, I think it's important. For one thing, I love reading Dogen, and I would like to get every reference he makes. He makes a lot of references. Like, I don't remember if he mentioned Uyadin, you know, or, or any of these things. But uh, by the time I get to 1240s Common Era, after having read all of Tipitaka, and every Mahayana Sutra, and Vajrayana Sutra, and Shingon, and so on and so forth. By the time I get back to Dogen, I'm hoping, and I'm fairly well certain, that I will catch every reference he makes to previously established Buddhist canon and or apocrypha, <laughs> fan fiction, whatever. I might have to get some more uh, books by Chan and Zen masters. Predating Dogen, I mean. <sighs> well, it's been a little while since I just rambled at the beginning of one of these. Some of you might not like it. Excuse me a moment. I literally just woke up. I had told uh, Priel's in a different place for a couple days. We're finally going to be reunited this evening, if you were wondering. It's a long story. But anyway, um, so I'm just kind of like finding stuff to do here. This hostel in South Goa, which of course involves making these, which I enjoy doing, but it'll be good to be reunited. So, on the first night, I, uh, I said, uh, you know, I wake up at 8, so they brought an omelet and toast at 8 a.m., and I went to bed at 12, so it worked out, but last night, I was up till about 3, 3.30, and uh, I was in the middle of a dream. Excuse me a moment. So in the dream, I was uh, somewhere in, in India. And there was a man who was trying to sell me something. And, you know, I was in a nice way, as nice as a person can possibly shut down a salesman before he's made his pitch. I was trying to tell him he's wasting his breath. I'm not interested. Thank you, though. But whatever you're selling, I'm not interested. And uh, he wasn't going to allow me to get away without hearing his pitch. And so it turned out his pitch had to do with IT professionals. And that there was some meeting, that there was some discount, that there was some once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for IT professionals. Said, what? What makes you think that I'm an IT professional, or that I would ever want to be an IT professional? And he kept talking, and talking about the benefits, and talking about all these different things. And I said, "Okay, you've made your pitch. Now, let me tell you my story." <laughs> and uh, I told him, when I was young, I learned a program on the uh, Atari 800 with the the uh, Gosh, command cartridge instead of the Pac-Man cartridge. There was that one that was basically like... I mean, it wasn't DOS, but it was something. 
and uh, then I would take the magazines and type out the the programs in the magazines and see what they did and then change things and so I started doing that when I was about four years old and then saw Tron of course and I wanted to be Kevin Flynn I, there's like I've met a few people we're a demographic I know there are others out there that are exactly my age that had this very similar experience or about the same age but I was four and uh, I wanted to be Kevin Flynn. People would ask me in nursery school. My friend, uh, my, my, my dad would do Buddhist meditation in the morning. Oh, and my grandma on my mom's side would always say, are you coming to church? You know, so when people would ask me, uh, what's your religion? When I was four years old, I would say that my dad is Buddhist. My uh, mom's mom, my grandma is Christian, but my religion is Tron. For those who have no idea what Tron is, here's a little sample. So what that was, was that was a computer program called Tron uh, communicating with his user, which means his God, his creator, the one who wrote him, the one in whose image he is made. Because when a, when a user writes a program, a little piece of the user's soul goes into the computer grid and so their program has their face I loved it I mean it was a unique idea for 1982 1983 pretty pretty good for Disney um, they made a sequel it was fun but the original man with uh, Jeff Bridges <sighs> well anyway I later, uh, just for fun, wrote a, uh, I wrote a computer program called uh, Sonnet 1 in BASIC. And, uh, and my, my dad used to crack up. We used to spend hours hitting the, the space bar, and it would generate a sonnet. Back then, those sonnets were pretty dirty um, and not politically correct. My dad was choosing, you know, half the words, so you can imagine. He was a different generation. But then uh, later, when I heard that they were doing a sequel in like 2009, I think I heard, and uh, so just like kind of, I think in one day, I, uh, I found uh, an emulator, or I think on that computer I could still run GW Basic, and I rewrote Sonnet 1 as best I could, um, as, as he was the first time around, and... Uh, tweaked the program here and there and so yeah basically it does this it generates as many randomly generated sonnet poems as you would care to as many times as you hit the space bar that's how many sonnets you'll get if it were mathematically possible for you to sit there 
and hit the spacebar infinity times, <laughs> you would pretty damn close to get a different sonnet every single time you hit the spacebar. In fact, I did the math. The human DNA is such that there is room for a certain amount of diversity, a lot of diversity among humans. But if you take a, a deck of 52 cards and you shuffle it pretty well, the likelihood of being able to guess the accurately the order of the cards, five of spades, ace of diamonds, the likelihood that you would be able to do that after thoroughly shuffling the deck, it's, it would be more difficult than for you to accurately guess my DNA strand without looking at me or hearing my voice or knowing my gender or only knowing that I'm human. So there's that much diversity between the human DNA and playing cards. Playing cards are more diverse. Uh, the likelihood, if I were to say, I'm thinking of a grain of sand somewhere in the world, either in a desert or on a beach, one particular grain of sand, the likelihood that you would come to me with that particular grain of sand is more likely than that you would guess my entire DNA, which is more likely than that you would guess every card in that deck. Well, Sonnet 1 leaves them all behind by a lot. Because almost every word in every line is selected on the spot, at random. The only uh, thing that binds it together is grammatic structure, rhyming, that's it. Um, everything he's free to do. Uh, but every sentence makes sense. And so I'm very proud of Sonnet 1. And uh, so, of course, in, in my child's mind, I mean, by that, I, I don't have any children. I'm the child. In my child's mind, this is what Sonnet 1 looks like. You are Sonnet 1. I am Sonnet 1. You will compose, I will compose random, random sonnets. sonnets. I didn't tell the man all of this in the dream, but I told him that uh, I exaggerated a little bit. I told him that I was programming in C++ as a teenager. I started to learn, but then see what happened was when I was 15 years old, my dad died. And then I was like, see, I'm telling you my story. <laughs> I think I called him an asshole, but in a friendly way, because <laughs> he's a salesman and I was doing the one, I was doing the story pitch. And then I said, uh, I realized after he died that all of this, I'm going to be a computer programmer, you know, which at that, at that time in the 80s, we imagined that meant that you would be a king, you would be a god, you know, something akin to maybe uh, Bill Gates or something. Um, more likely would, would mean that, you know, you're working 60-hour weeks in, uh, in an IT department somewhere, you know, wanting to slit your throats and the throats of others, but um, I didn't know that back then, but it was 1993, and after he died, I realized I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't want to go to Princeton. I didn't want to, you know. So by then, first year of high school, I had already finished the required high school mathematics and, um, you know, programming requirements. It was a good school. And uh, so I, I said I don't want to I don't want to take any more math courses. My mathematical mind was already fine, um, but my my reading and writing and creative mind needed work. So I replaced all of my math classes with art and literature, reading and writing, 
and over the course of four years, I managed to go from top one half percentile in math, but down at the 60 percentile in, uh, you know, reading and writing, and I managed to make them not only equal, but I got, I think I got a 720 on the SATs for the reading and re reading comprehension and the literature and all that, where I only got 700 in the, uh, the math portion, math and left brain reasoning. I'm letting myself ramble because it's episode 100. Special, right? And anyway, before I had a chance to like finish that sentence, talking to this Indian salesman in my dream, there was a knock at the door. And I woke up, and there's this tea. And the tea's still warm. It's hot, actually. Hmm. Warm. So I set up the uh, the old phone, trusty iPhone 12 purple, behind the scenes. My trusty, whatchamacallit, I don't know the name of this microphone. Basically all I have to do is put the computer on airplane mode and put the phone on airplane mode and restart both of them, because I've learned the hard way a couple things. Um, time gets affected by how much is on the mind of the technology. So in other words, if I take a phone that has been talking to all of its, whatever it does, you know, it's, it's in the background, it's doing something, it's doing this, it's doing that, it's connected to something on the internet, and it's thinking about something else and processing something else, that I say, take a video for an hour, right? And it says, okay, okay, I'll do that while I'm doing everything else. And then I tell the computer, record audio for an hour. And it's like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll try, you know. And then uh, in the end, the video and the audio don't line up. They don't, the time is a little off. It's like if you took a watch and put it in space and you had its twin watch on the Earth and you let a year go by and you come back around and you find out that gravity has affected time. Well, yeah, time is, is different according to a phone with a lot on its mind and a computer with a lot on its mind. Don't know which one is correct or incorrect, but they don't line up unless I put them both on airplane mode, turn them off and turn them back on, then it's perfect. It's perfect. Unless the lighting is very less. By the way, if you think you're seeing a bald eagle, I'm seeing one. Th that's not a bald eagle, but it's an easy mistake to make. Um, it's this. I've forgotten the name, but now you know what it's called. Anyway, yeah, very similar. Bald eagle is this. See the difference? Anyway. They're all over the place, so it's kind of nice. I get to imagine that I'm watching a flock of bald eagles. Should I get to the reading? Sure. We'll at least read one today. Did I finish what I was talking about? Anybody have any questions? Forfeiture. Nisa Gia, 18. At one time, the enlightened one, the Lord, was staying at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove at the squirrel's feeding place. Now at that time, the venerable Upananda, you remember him and all his robes, the son of the Sakyans, was dependent as a regular diner on a certain family in Rajagaha. That's Rajgir, the, uh, the home of Mahavir, when solid food or soft food came to that family, a portion from that was set aside for the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans. Now at that time, meat came one evening to that family. A portion from that was set aside for the venerable Upananda, 
the son of the Sakyans. A young boy belonging to that family, getting up in the night towards morning, cried, Give me meat! In quotes. Then the man spoke thus to his wife, quote, Give the boy the master's portion. Having got another portion in exchange, we will give that to the master. End quote. The second use of the word portion in the, uh, the man's speaking was in parentheses, just in case you were interested in that kind of thing. Then the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, dressing in the morning and taking his bowl, different kind of bowl, more like this, and robe approached the family, and having approached, he sat down on the appointed seat. Then that man approached the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans. Having approached, he greeted the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans. He sat down at a respectful distance. As he was sitting at a respectful distance, that man spoke thus to the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans. Quote, Yesterday evening, honored sir, some in parentheses meat came. A portion from that was set aside for the master. This young boy, honored sir, got up in the night towards morning and cried, quote within quotes, give me meat, end quote within quotes, and the master's portion was given to the boy. What could you get with a kahapana, honored sir? End quote. Quote, the use of, in parentheses, kahapanas is given up by me, sir. End quote. He said, I think that's like money. So these monks are saying, oh, don't give me money. Just give me food, I think. Uh, yes. It's the monetary unit of poly literature, it says here. All right. Quote, yes, honored sir, it is given up. End quote. Quote, nevertheless, give me kahapana, sir. End quote, he said. Then that man, having given the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, a kahapana, looked down upon, <laughs> criticized, spread it about, saying, quote, as we accept gold and silver, so do these recluses, sons of the Sakyans, accept gold and silver. End quote. Monks heard that man who, three dots, spread it about. Those who were modest monks, three dots, spread it about, saying, quote, How can the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, accept gold and silver? Then these monks told this matter to the Lord. He said, quote, Is it true, as is said, that you, Upananda, accepted gold and silver? End quote. Quote, it is true, Lord. End quote. The enlightened one, the Lord, rebuked him, saying, quote, How can you, foolish man, accept gold and silver? It is not foolish man for pleasing those who are not yet in parentheses, pleased, three dots, and thus, monks, this rule of training should be set forth. Whatever monk should take gold and silver, or should get another to take it for him, in parentheses, or should consent to its being kept in deposit for him, in parentheses, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. Whatever monk Oh, wait. Yes. Whatever means... I think it was episode 98. We heard that full definition. Monk means... Gold means it is called the color of the teacher. Wow. Satsuvana. The color of the teacher. That's what they call gold back then. Well, you can call me Iron Pyrite. I won't be offended. Because I'm not a teacher. I'm just reading books. See, it's an illusion. It's just, it's just the same color. It's 
inside. This is this is where it is. It's coming out of here, but that doesn't mean anyway. Silver means kahapana, the masaka of copper. What? The masaka of wool, the masaka of lock used in business. So, okay, silver just basically means money, but it could be any of these things. All right, that makes sense. L'argent, as they say in France, uh, means money, but the money's not silver. It's paper and, you know, mixtures of alloys of different kinds of metals. So when they say silver, they mean money. Cool. Should take means if he himself takes, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. Should get another to take it for him means if he causes another to take it, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. Should consent to its being kept in deposit means if he says, quote, within quotes, let this come to be for the master, end quote, within quotes, or consents to its being kept in deposit, it is to be forfeited. It should be forfeited in the midst of the order, and thus, monks, should it be forfeited. That monk, approaching the order, arranging his upper robe over one shoulder, honoring the feet of the senior monks, sitting down on his haunches. You remember haunches from the monkey? Saluting with joined palms, should speak thus, quote within quotes, I, honored sirs, accept gold and silver, accepted gold and silver. This is to be forfeited by me. I forfeit it to the order, end quote within quotes. Having forfeited it, the offense should be confessed. The offense should be acknowledged by an experienced, competent monk. If an attendant of a monastery or a lay follower comes there, he should be told, quote within quotes, Sir, find out about this. End quote. If he says, quote within quotes, what could be got with this? End quote. He should not be told, quote within quotes, bring this or that. End quote within quotes. Oil or ghee or honey or molasses may be mentioned as allowable. All right. If he brings what is allowable, having got it in exchange for this, it may be made use of by all except one who has accepted the gold and silver. Huh. What? <laughs> okay. If he can undertake to do this in this way, it is well. Oh, okay. So it's like indulgences, but ghee. Right, okay. But if he cannot un undertake to do it, not uh, not indulgences. It's uh, what's the other thing where you light a candle for a loved one to for their sins? It's, it's not like indulgences. It's the opposite of indulgences. Indulgences had to do with ye. But if he cannot undertake to do it, he should be told, quote within quotes, sir, remove this. End quote within quotes. If he removes it, it is well. But if he does not remove it, a monk endowed with five qualities should be agreed upon as. Silver remover. Huh. Cool. One who would not follow a wrong course through desire. One who would not follow a wrong course through hatred. One who would not follow a wrong course through stupidity. Well, you can count me out. Anyway, one who would not follow a wrong course through fear. I'm more likely to follow the wrong course because of stupidity, personally. Uh, anyway, and one who would know what is removed and what is not removed. I think that's a bird. It sounds like a beeping machine, but it's a bird. Hear it? And thus, monks, should he be agreed upon. First, the monk is to be requested. Having been requested, the order should be informed by an experienced, competent monk, saying, quote, quotes, honored sirs, let the order listen to me. If it seems right to the order, the order should agree up upon the monk so-and-so as silver remover. This is the motion. Honored sirs, 
Let the order listen to me. The order agrees upon monk, the monk so-and-so as silver remover. If it is pleasing to the venerable ones to agree upon the monk so-and-so as silver remover, let them be silent. If it is not pleasing, they should speak. The monk so-and-so is agreed upon by the order as silver remover, and it is right. Three dots. Thus do I understand this, end quote within quotes, because everybody was silent. They voted. Everybody was on the same page. If somebody had an issue, it's like that old thing from weddings. Speak now or forever hold your peace. It is to be removed by the monk agreed upon, making no sign. I don't know can't think of a good sign to make. If making a sign, he lets it drop, there is an offensive wrongdoing. I'm a little confused. The silver remover must avoid drawing attention to the place where he throws down the rupiah. Oh! Oh! So the order doesn't keep the money. I was thinking, oh, this must be how the order starts making money. Hmm. No. They take the money, and a certain monk takes it out somewhere and throws it away and never tells anybody where he threw it. Wow. I've got to say, I like these early Buddhists. All things considered. If make... Okay, yeah. So if he makes a sign like, I'm going to drop it over by that big tree, then, then he's made an offensive wrongdoing, right? If he thinks that it is gold and silver when it is gold and silver, and, in parentheses, accepts gold and silver, there is an offensive expiation involving forfeiture. If he is in doubt as to whether it is gold and silver and accepts gold and silver, there is an offensive expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that it is not gold and silver when it is gold and silver and accepts gold and silver, there is an offensive expiation involving forfeiture. But Lord, I thought it was... If he thinks that it is gold and silver when it is not gold and silver, there is an offensive wrongdoing. Ha! <laughs> he got tricked. Uh, if he thinks that it is not gold and silver when it is not gold and silver, there is no offense. Okay, and by silver that means any kind of money. So... All right, someone gave him a shiny thing and said, Hey, you want a shiny thing? And he was like, Oh, I like it. It's shiny. And then, then it's at least not this particular offense. Maybe there's something else that's like, Don't keep shiny things. There is no offense if, to in, if taking it or causing another, in parentheses, to take it within a monastery or within a house. He lays it aside thinking, quote, It will be for him who will take it. Ah, if he is mad, if he is the first wrongdoer. So a monk can accept money, provided that he's going to set it aside and say, I'm going to give this to the first guy that comes along and says, oh, pray for me, I, I need money. He's going to say, hey, I found this, I guess it's for you. That's allowed. Yeah, sometimes season one of Next Generation is actually pretty good. There's teachings in it too. I mean, like, like uh, habits and ways of thinking and behavior, and and you can see and understand the thought process and the nuances of the thought process. That, you know, Buddhist teachings don't necessarily always have to be about that which is is not, and the sky is a metaphor for blah. You know, that's more Nagarjuna. <laughs> But these are very practical instructions about how you should live and why, you know, basically. The why comes through. The why comes through in the stories more often than not. Um, which often seem to have to do with how the monks are perceived by society. But the society already has a pre-established idea of how a monk should behave. Which is because of... Anybody? Jainism. Um, there were the naked monks. I don't know if those are the same naked monks. But yeah, okay. So there were 62 different religions going on at the time of Lord Buddha. But 
the ones in Raj gear anyway, they their expectations about monks were probably largely affected by the fact that that's the heart of Jainism in the world, that Mahavir used to advise the kings and so on and so forth. If you're shocked and confused by what I've just said, please do check out that. I'm just going to read one today, partly because I rambled a lot, which was partly inspired by having just woken up from a dream, but also partly inspired by this being episode 100. And uh, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope you have a wonderful day, whatever day you're hearing this or seeing this. And uh, I will go ahead and close now. By the way, that book, Sonnet 1, is... Uh, or rather, the uh, the program Sonnet One, my child, you know, uh, has written and published a book. Doesn't have my name on it except in you know the the description. It doesn't say by Edward Reeve. It is a book called Sonnet One, written by Sonnet One. I even had to deal with Amazon saying, uh, "How is it that you're selling this book if it's written by this Sonnet One person? You know, is this a pen name of yours?" And I explained, no, it's not a pen name. The, uh, the poems are written by a computer program. However, given the current legal rights of computer programs to uh, be authors, I think that it's safe to say that, that, legally speaking, I am the author, but I did not write these poems, to be clear. These poems were, in fact, written by a computer program. But I wrote the computer program, so indirectly, perhaps you could say I'm the author of the computer program, but not the author of these poems. And so finally Amazon was like, whatever, fuck, you know, I just can't, yeah, okay, all right, you know, we'll, we'll let you take money from, uh, from your computer programs. Uh, no, they sent a generic, congratulations, you know, you've you got a new book, it's on at one. Um, so yeah, it's about, I think, 2,000 poems, 2,000 sonnets written by Sonnet One. Just for fun, I'll, uh, I'll put one at the end of this episode after the closing credits, a post-credit scene, if you will, where we'll get to hear, uh, an entire sonnet as, as, uh, recited by Sonnet One, the program, who looks like me. But in the Tron world, the grid, is it, is it making sense? Are you following? It's a generational thing. Anybody slightly older than me is like, what? And anybody slightly younger is like, huh? People who, who, who saw Legacy are like, oh yeah, Tron with the discs and the... And it's like they kind of miss the whole thing about like, the relationship between the program and the user being very important. I mean, I guess they, they went into it with Flynn and Clue. Flynn! Am I still to create the perfect system? Yeah. But that was more like, well, that was like a fallen creation. He was a creation gone wrong, and God had to take responsibility for having created you know, the devil. Because he was communist, right? <laughs> anyway, um, anti-revolutionary, anti counter-revolutionary, subconscious signaling, courtesy of Disney. Uh, it's to be expected, I suppose. Thank you all for joining me on this uh, very silly and rambling Episode 100 of Edward Reeves' Buddhist Books Podcast. I will close now with the prayer that my father and I used to pray at the end of our morning meditations. To the north and to the south, to the east and to the west, to the spirits of light among us, and to the spirits below. We send out our reverent love and compassion. 
May all beings be happy. May all beings be serene. May all beings be in peace. Oh. End of line. And 17. When assault kicks some hamsters by Butters Tersley. Ironically, the dance Butters Tersley for a door. The sensitive pill drains real nice down some ice. Round carrots shake subtly outside of the war. A tasty headlight calls clearly down the mice. Tersely, the space slept mysteriously from a yawn. As the lawyer cements over some rice, spacious hamstrings flow moistly beside a fawn. A sleek hair shirt jumps truly beside the spice. Is it true that a mind hits all over a fist? The flatulent bell creeps real nice for a sound. Strange monkey creeps mysteriously between a mist. A cold carpet flips calmly underneath a greyhound. As the dollars plant a Porsche with a muscle, the most sensitive breast spreads strangely down a castle. 